0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, despite uh, the many layers of signs discouraging you from um, like, doing anything, basically. Uh, so we're, we're glad to have you here at the Wilson Center. And uh, we request, uh, aside from the normal rules of decorum like turning off phones and uh, raising your hand before you ask a question and things, that uh, if you do get COVID-19 in this room, just don't you know tweet that, because I'd uh, <laughs> rather not, not be cited as a source of an outbreak. Uh, But we're still doing what we're doing, and we're extremely uh, pleased that we have Brian Milikovsky with us uh, direct from Ukraine. Um, And uh, the topic, I think, is both sort of timeless uh, in that I think the the dilemma is uh, one that has been around not only for Ukraine but for uh, other uh, former Soviet uh, republics which are um, saddled with these protracted conflicts. Uh, but also is very timely, of course, because of President Zelensky and his uh, possible initiatives. So um, I won't uh, steal any more of uh, Brian's thunder, I'll simply uh, introduce him. He's an independent analyst uh, working on economic recovery issues uh, in uh, Luhansk Oblast in Ukraine. Um, He has been in either Ukraine or Russia since 2009, working uh, in the spaces of ecology uh, and humanitarian and development uh, sectors, and I'd like to underscore the availability of his latest publication, uh, just came out today in fact. Uh, You will find it printed out on the table, or, amazingly, if you have one of these little devices called a smartphone, uh, you can grab it online. And I I highly recommend you read it. It is, in fact, different uh, than what he'll present on today. This publication talks a lot about some interesting comparisons between uh, Transnistria and Moldova and uh, the occupied Donbass territory. uh, But I think uh, today he's going to give us a different presentation on the Donbass economy. So without further ado, um, we're going to go till 3 o'clock. I think Brian will speak for roughly half an hour. Is that good? And then we'll have plenty of time for moderated Q&A. So
1: Brian, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much. Um, thanks to the Kennan Institute for having me today. Uh, also, I'd like to say uh, thank you for uh, it really being an institution for the last four years, that's uh, a place where I've been able to publish about socioeconomic issues in, uh, in the Donbass. I don't have an affiliation or maybe a, a traditional path to, to commentary on this issue, so I, I've been really grateful uh, of the openness of the, the Kennan Institute to, uh, to my point of view. Uh, and special thanks to Joe Dresden for helping us get this out in time for, for today's. Um, I will, as I said, not sp- – as Ma- uh, Matt said, not speak specifically uh, during my talk on the transnistria uh, Donbass comparison, although I hope very much it comes up during questions, uh, because I really wanted to dive into the situation with the economy in uh, the ukrainian Donbass. So why did I give my presentation such a dramatic title, Wartime Donbass Economy, Can It Be Saved? Uh, because essentially the, the stakes are that high. It's a very much an open question uh, in the coming years, particularly in the, n- the non-government controlled areas, uh, whether there is going to be the ba- basic economic conditions for, uh, to provide a basic livelihood to the millions of people who call the Ukrainian nonboss their home. Uh, It's an open question, and it's one we should be talking much more about in in the context of this this conflict. I think the geopolitical questions really distract us from that basic uh, and very fundamental issue. Um, As a result of the uh, armed conflict in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, which is the the provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, has been divided into two. About 60% of the physical territory is still controlled by the Ukrainian government, uh, with some uh, exceptions, more or less operates in the, in the normal Ukrainian legal sphere. Uh, and about 40% is the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. Uh, today I'll use a kind of uh, some, some very neutral terms we often use in humanitarian and development sectors the government-controlled areas and the non-government-controlled areas, GCA, and NGCA. I'll use those acronyms a lot. The NGCA, of course, being territories wrested out of Ukraine's sovereignty by Russia's operation in 2014, uh, which involved both, of course, their own armed forces and uh, the— participation of Ukrainian nationals of separatist persuasion. And these territories today are administ- administered largely by Ukrainian nationals, but with a very important layer of, of Russian administrators who really give uh, Russia high-level uh, high, high level policy making uh, direction uh, for the, for those territories. So although only 40% is under Russian and separatist control, in the case of Luhansk Oblast, that's 80% of the urban territory. So... Um, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't go to my first slide. So, uh, oh, I guess it doesn't show up on the screen. Well, you can see Luhansk Oblast is that right, m- farther to the right, uh, shaped like a big bell pepper, province. And most of the government-controlled area, which is to the north of that heavy line I drew, is is rural. Uh, Eighty percent of its urban territory and a similar amount of its industrial capacity is under Russian and separatist control. In the case of Donetsk Oblast, the more li- to the left. Uh, it's about 60% under Russian and separatist control. The fact that r- Ukraine was able to control and main, uh, return and maintain control over Mariupol in the south and the Kramatorsk cluster in the north really keeps the proportion a little bit better in Ukraine's favor in Donetsk-Oblast. Um, the government-controlled areas, the GCA, their industrial economy is functional but in deep crisis. Uh, I would say it's experiencing a much more sharpened, heightened version of the same general crisis of the Ukrainian industrial economy right now, which I call industrial drift. Uh, There's essentially no working industrial policy right now in Ukraine. Uh, A lot of commentators feel that the sort of new focus on agricultural exports and IT service exports has really stolen a lot of sort of mental energy from the very... economically important manufacturing sector. A lot of policy opportunities are b- not being used uh, to support uh, the, re- uh, the country's economic er, manufacturing sector. And so uh, it's widely believed that's one of the reasons for bringing down uh, Prime Minister Huncha Rook's government was the really bad figures for industrial production. Uh, which are constantly slumping. However, in the east, of course, this is just a more concentrated version of that same crisis, accentuated by how much logistical and trade relations were were disrupted in these two provinces, both simply between the government and the non-government controlled areas, and then of course the loss of of that Russian, traditional Russian market, although in my next slide I'll add a little nuance to that. Uh, In the non-government controlled areas, this is a fundamentally different situation. It's a barely functional industrial economy uh, that is being suffocated, uh, ruthlessly exploited, uh, and which if five five more years of the status quo is very much a question how much of that capacity will remain restorable at all. Uh, I wanted to briefly touch on the... Um, Government-controlled areas. Give just give a little some some statistics here in visual form. This is industrial exports from Donetsk on the top and Luhansk uh, oblasts on the bottom from 1996 to 2017. Um, If you added then the last couple years, it would it would not change this picture very much. Um, For those that might not be able to see this, if they're listening later, we basically have a sawtooth uh, of uh, sawtooth effect where. Uh, after each major crisis, we see uh, recovery to be hit again by a crisis uh, and the the biggest crisis of course that we don 't see here is is the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, which we then see a quite strong recovery uh, up to the two thousand and eight um, global crisis, which absolutely pounded Ukraine with its resource dependent um, uh, raw resource dependent economy. Uh, But, however, a quite steep recovery again after 2008, only for a new crisis to begin in 2011, which is partially caused by again downturns in uh, world metal prices, but also by a series of Russian political decisions that they call import substitution. They wanted they, in their mind, Ukraine had become an insufficiently reliable geopolitical partner, and two years before the war started. Russia was already dramatically cutting out Ukraine from its industrial supply chains. A really good example is r- freight cars. Ukraine used to make most of the freight cars th- that are moving around Russia, and in 2011, they almost cut off imports entirely after building their own plants. Uh, so we were able to see a quite steep decline in, in uh, eastern Ukrainian uh, industrial exports before the war begins. The war accentuates... Causes that decline to become a plunge. Uh, Bottom of the barrel is 2014, 2015. Then a a brief recovery begins before the blockade and nationalization crisis, which I'll get to in a few slides. Um, And I'd like to, one more thing I'd like to to draw your attention to here is a little bit about adding some nuance to the perception of eastern Ukraine and the Donbass as an entirely Russia CIS dependent industrial economy. That's very widely believed. I believed that until I started in my work getting into into this analysis. Um, CIS here is blue, so that's you know Russia, Kazakhstan, Belarus for the most part. Uh, red is Europe. That's EU plus Balkans and a few other uh, non uh, non EU countries. Green is other, dominated by North America and China. Uh, until the 2008 crisis, the CIS uh, is always uh, a minority player in in industrial exports uh, from from the Donbass. Then, uh, as a result of the 2008 crisis, the role of Russia greatly grows because the role of the rest of the world shrunk, and uh, and then Russia, by its own policy decisions, begins decreasing uh, its its role in in those in those imports. So. To this day and before the the war, um, this was really much more of a globally linked industrial economy. It was not just this chain directly into Russia, which I think is is often widely perceived. Um, So what's the actual mechanism for the decline to become a plunge in 2014? How is it that uh, what was already a very serious situation became a a catastrophic one? well, we can't deny physical destruction played a major role. There's hundreds of war-damaged industrial enterprises in eastern Ukraine. Thousands of small businesses. Uh, I won't really get into the agricultural economy today, but there's land taken out of production by mining and uh, by mines and and war damages. Uh, but uh, simply, a, a great deal of economic production was was shelled, at least temporarily, out of production. Um, also, physical disruption of the movement of goods. So this picture below is uh, the famous pedestrian bridge at Stanitsa Luhanska, the only crossing into the non-government-controlled areas in Luhansk Oblast. Uh, one of Zelensky's early, President Zelensky's early moves was to actually fix that bridge. It's no longer so awful. It's no longer a broken bridge. You have to go up and down. But essentially, until 2019, uh, small farmers would... Uh, have to schlep their vegetables and meat and honey up and down this broken bridge by by hand where there used to be two automotive bridges obviously allowing much better movement of, of local goods into Luhansk the city of Luhansk uh, so physical disruption of trade plays a major role then sanction um, we don't pay a lot of attention to Russia's answering sanctions but they hit Ukraine very hard um, also, so does the just general downturn of the Russian economy. So they're just buying a lot less Ukrainian machinery, for instance, in addition to sanctioning Ukraine to deliberately uh, reduce its role in, in supplying Russia with, with goods. So, for instance, from, uh, in 2013, uh, Russia and Kazakhstan, which are the two major CIS purchasers of Ukrainian machinery, in 2013 they buy $6.17 billion worth of Ukrainian machinery, by 2019, it's down to less than a billion. Uh, now, also, at the same time, for instance, the EU goes from 2 to $3 billion of imports in that time. That's a good data point on its own, but when you recall the $5 billion drop uh, in the CIS, we, we understand what these disruptions and plus Russian sanctions really mean for the Donbass industrial economy. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we do see a small recovery after... The really hot stage of the conflict ends in March 2015, um, and we see Ukrainian industrial enterprises continuing to operate in the non-government controlled areas. They re-register in the government controlled areas, they pay taxes to the Ukrainian government, they... In various shadowy ways, have a certain tax burden that they pay to the separatist authorities, which is an extremely contentious issue in Ukraine. It's very hard to tell exactly how much that was going on, but it appears to to have been going on. Uh, but they, the produ- products of these anthracite coal mines, metallurgy plants, continue to flow out into the uh, global economy in a way that I think would be very familiar to Moldova watchers. Uh, it's a it's a quite similar situation to the uh, flow of industrial goods from Transnistria under the Moldovan customs stamp into into the global economy, until March two thousand seventeen, February two thousand seventeen. Um, uh, at this time, this uh, very and en- in ideologically ambiguous movement of goods from the Russian and separatist controlled territories into Ukraine proper and onwards to, to the global markets, um, uh, is suddenly uh, being disrupted by a wildcat blockade. I mean, we can see it's really these sort of hand-built barricades of the, rail, the railroad tracks, uh, carried out by groups of Ukrainian army veterans, veterans of the anti-terrorist operation, which is what Ukraine called the war for the first four years. Uh, today, it's the joint forces operation. Uh, and other activists, um, and they literally block block the rail lines, saying we need an end to the trade in blood. We need to stop subsidizing the terrorists. This is the rhetoric around the blockade. It's not clear to this day how truly grassroots this blockade is. A lot of Ukrainian commentators think there's some major political actors behind it. Uh, it's not at all publicly discussed, this sharp, Sudden change in in rhetoric and policy around the around uh, um, uh, the continued participation of of factories and mines that are in the non government controlled areas in in the Ukrainian and global economy. Initially, President Poroshenko Petro Poroshenko at the time is very much against this blockade. He calls these factories and mines Ukrainian far posts. He says. Uh, these enterprises, he already says this actually after the fact, were an anchor that held these territories to Ukraine. We intended to use them during reintegration, during the return of Ukraine to the Donbass and the Donbass to Ukraine. So this is his initial position. And then uh, quite sharply, he pulls a U-turn and legalizes the blockade uh, and essentially... uh, Most of industrial production in the non-government controlled areas loses its access to the global market. Also, extremely opaque, why this decision was made by President Poroshenko, very little public debate, but in this moment, things just dramatically change, and all future scenarios dramatically change and get much darker for the economic survival of this region. Um, this is a very important moment, and I really wish there was more publicly available information, more ways for Ukrainians and other people to understand how this decision was made. Um, so at this point, uh, you, uh, as I said, these industrial enterprises lose access to the world market. And probably the most—sorry, uh, I didn't explain—probably the, the most likely reason for Poroshenko's change uh, in position was— the rhetoric of the separatists and Moscow uh, escalated after the start of the blockade. And they began saying, if you try to stop us, we'll nationalize these enterprises. Uh, And it seems quite possible Parashenko really felt he could not uh, be seen to be caving into that kind of pressure. Um, And they indeed carried out a sort of soft nationalization, in which they took under temporary management, Mm, around a hundred serious industrial enterprises. Uh, that's an estimate. Uh, there's actually no official list that anyone's been able to put together. Um, uh, and then almost immediately transfer most of the money-making ones to a shadowy business holding called Vneshtorg Service, which has the very vague name of External Trade Service. Uh, this holding is registered in the breakaway territory of South Ossetia in Georgia uh, for various reasons that allow Russia to not have direct economic relations with this business. It does it through a breakaway it recognizes, which recognized the Donbass breakaways. Uh, and this company is run by Ukrainian oligarch on the lam, Sergei Kurchenko, who uh, was a billionaire who was close to ex-president Yanukovych and then fled to Moscow. So... Most of these money-making enterprises are put under the control of this holding, um, but they no longer have access to the world markets. So they are essentially just, quote-unquote, exporting to Russia, uh, and they very early on get m- something close to a full tax holiday. They don't pay many direct taxes to the so-called People's Republics, which appears to be a move by Moscow to not have that money be mismanaged, in their viewpoint, mismanaged. Because it also, more or less, most Ukrainian commentators believe that, economic commentators believe, Vnesh service is a front for management of these enterprises by by Moscow. Uh, And that the money made by exporting these industrial goods into the Russian economy is then passed through, in some way, the Russian government to be sent back into the non-government controlled areas, both as budget subsidies for the so-called republics, and in direct social payments like pensions. So a lot of these resources are essentially eventually making it back into the republics, but with very carefully managed use, Uh, although it's impossible to understand how much of that money remains in Russia. Uh, A uh, prominent... A uh, separatist, uh, Alexander Khodakovsky, who was uh, in the Ukrainian security services and then became a separatist commander and is now an opposition blogger in Donetsk, uh, he, um, he says that our metal gets sold to, to Russia at a 30% discount. They pay us just enough to keep the lights on in the factory and pay workers a, a barely livable wage. Uh, So there's clearly some thought in those territories that somebody's making a lot of money on this laundering of industrial goods into Russia. But the Russian market is very narrow for these goods. Uh, Many of them are laundered onwards into the global market. Uh, In one rather absurd situation, anthracite coal is laundered back into Ukraine in order to run, for instance, the only electrical power plant in luhansk Oblast, which operates on more or less, everyone understands. Mostly on stolen Ukrainian coal laundered through Russia and back into Ukraine, uh, uh, steel is laundered onwards. Uh, a, a ship was seized at Mariupol port that was that was full of uh, metal from Alchevsk last year, uh, which is a, a separatist-controlled city. Uh, but the Russian economy is not has many many competitors to these producers. Um, Major Russian steel producers are already complaining that the, that the republics are dumping steel in Russia at dumping prices. Uh, uh, Russia cannot absorb what used to be a global trade uh, in its own economy. It can partially re-launder, for re-export some of it. Uh, but essentially, this is just not at all a compensation for having lost the global, m- global market access. Uh, and, and other, other sep commentators who are co- uh, s- sympathetic to separatists, I would uh, uh, highlight uh, Sergei Sakandinsky, who is a, a separatist journalist, say, where is the trade liberalization? Why is it we still need a Ukrainian custom stamp to sell our goods into, into Russia? Why are we not recognized? Uh, there's not been the liberalization of sort of open trade that many people thought would happen. And that appears to be because there's lobbying inside Russia, for understandable reasons, not to flood its internal market. Uh, So I just want to briefly touch on this. This is essentially the effect of de-oligarchization and nationalization in the so-called people's (laughs) republics. You went from a bunch of oligarchs to one oligarch, who's less competent. Uh, Say what you will about traditional oligarchs, some of them like Rinat Akhmetov, which was recently acknowledged by President Zelensky when he was asked, why did why is there a DTEC executive now as our prime minister? DTEC is the energy company belonging to Rinat Akhmetov. And he said, the oligarchs hire the best. We need to recognize that. Uh, so um, uh, Sarah, I don't think anybody thinks Sergei Korchenko hires the best. He's the, the guy here on the right, um, this very happy-looking oligarch on the right who now controls 70% of the industrial economy the mighty Donbass industrial economy that's under separatist control. Uh, So all of these, I mean, this is just a a selection of the firms that were so-called nationalized, Uh, uh, but um, this was a major part of the ideology. uh, For those um, Ukrainian nationals who bought into uh, separatism, a lot of it was about the freeing, finally, their economy from the hated Ukrainian oligarchs. So this is a bitter reality for many people, that essentially, after a a short symbolic nationalization, they were re-oligarchized, and, again, much less competently. Um, I'm going to really briefly try to to draw some comparisons between what is going on in the government-controlled and non-government-controlled areas economically by comparing firms in the same industrial sectors. Really briefly, there's a lot of weeds to get into here, and I know I'm I'm a little already short on time, so I'll try to be very brief. So, for instance, in chemicals, on the top, two firms owned by the uh, uh, notorious Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Fyrtash, who uh, you, the U.S. would like to extradite. Um, one in the city I live in, Severodonetsk, Zot, which makes fertilizers for f- Ukrainian farmers, uh, because it lost access to the cheap Russian natural gas that was Firt- the, the basis of Firtash's business empire, uh, it's really much less profitable now to make fertilizers there. Uh, they're working at maybe 10 to 20 percent capacity, uh, using ammonium that's brought in by train from Russia. Hard to believe, but those supply chains, many of them, are still still operating. This is not a success story, but Severodonetska's zot is alive, if only barely, as opposed to Firtash's largest chemical factory, Stirol in uh, separatist and Russian-controlled Horlivka, which has not produced anything except plastic bags for five years. This is a huge chemical plant. Now, to be fair, that's not only because of the horrible economic conditions I described, but also because uh, very early on they shut down this plant because so much fighting is going on near. Horevka, and they didn't want to cause a very dangerous chemical explosion. So that's a little bit of a maybe uh, not not just a clear picture of it being an economically driven situation. Rail cars, I mentioned Russia tries to cut rail cars out of its industrial imports uh, before the war, and then in 2014, it takes away the license for all Ukrainian-controlled rail car factories to send rail cars that can go on the Russian rails at all. And that also cuts them off from Central Asian markets, which are basically part of a united rail network with Russia. Uh, this is a huge blow. It finishes off what's left of the Russian market, but they leave that license for one separatist-controlled plant in stakhanov. One would think, great. Uh, since, until 2020, when they announced they're going to begin making rail cars again, the Stehanov rail, rail car factory made metal dumpsters. Uh, because... Still having access to the Russian market wasn't enough to overcome all those other incredibly negative factors I talked about. I won't get too much into it, but in government controlled Papasna, just across the front line from Stakhanov, uh, one one plant still scrapping along, doing pretty well for itself, uh, despite having completely lost the Russian market, partially because it's part of Akhmetov's business empire. So the oligarchs still playing their very important role. Uh, Metallurgy is maybe the most key um, example. Um, Partially because of the blockade, uh, especially when Akhmetov loses control of his metallurgy plants in the non-government controlled areas, he actually moves some of that production to Mariupol, which is famously remains under government control. Really sort of Ukraine's far post in the east. Uh, And so actually, production in his two plants in Mariupol, huge, huge horizon-filling metallurgy plants, Ilyich and Azovstal, actually increases uh, Mariupol's covered in billboards uh, for, we need we need more workers in the steel mill. Uh, whereas uh, the f- the w- famous mighty metallurgical complex that remained on that side of the front line is um, usually described in Russian as Dishitna Ledoni. It's gasping into its hand. It's gasping for breath. Uh, the Donetsk metallurgy plant, very famous, built by by Hughes, you, Donetsk was named after after him, Yusevka, uh, is, is, is gone. It's shut down. Uh, many other famous plants there, Yanakieva, Makievka, 10-20% capacity. The Alchevsk metal plant, one of the largest in Europe, $3 billion of investment into this plant since Ukraine's independence, uh, maybe 20-30% capacity right now. So this is in figures the difference between GCA and GCA and how dire the situation is in the non-government-controlled areas. Uh, Also, huge wage arrears to workers in those those metal plants. So where does this leave the non-government-controlled area industrial economy, the NGCA industrial economy, under blockade and mismanagement? Um, Despite having receiving also echoes of Moldova, receiving basically free natural gas to run his factories and subsidized ore to run his metallurgy plants, Mr. Kurchenko has disastrously mismanaged them. Uh, he is now $120 million in debt to the coal mines uh, in the two so-called republics, despite having more or less a monopoly on exporting coal to Russia. And that those debts get passed backwards into huge wage arrears for impoverished miners and metal workers. Uh, um, It's a really, really bad situation with labor rights on that side. It's not great right now in Ukraine with a new labor law being proposed that is kind of union busting, but um, very bad in the non-government controlled areas. uh, Earlier strike attempts were put down, according to social media, with violence and intimidation by the security services, according to social media. There's no reporting on on that side. Uh, but uh, right now, apparently, there's a shop strike at the Alchevsk Metal Plant, and, and miners are also talking about it, uh, because these are basically untenable conditions. Uh, more and more of these, cut off from the global economy, more and more of these enterprises are just becoming marginal. You see mines not being pumped and flooding, uh, which is a potential ecological disaster. Uh, you see working factories barely being maintained. Uh, in 2019, was a very snowy winter, and there was a a spate of roof collapses at major factories. There were also a few in in Ukraine proper, but there were many, many, many in the space of about two weeks in the so-called People's Republics. How are you going to run a complex manufacturing process that should be linked into global markets when you can't shovel the roof of your factory? So these are indicators of really how bad things are getting. Um, There's still functioning production, but I mean, when we look at these at these indicators. uh, I think we see the trajectory. So, uh, clearly this situation is leading to uh, an understanding that the so-called people's republics are not tenable as independent economic units. Um, And I think that was very much part of the motivation behind what I think of as a sort of maximum pressure policy of blockade. Uh, But is it creating dividends for Ukraine in the Minsk and Normandy negotiation processes? That's a really open question. Um, If it is, second, even more important question, is it creating dividends, is it bringing Moscow and its separatist clients to the negotiating table at conditions favorable to Ukraine faster than it is completely undoing Blockade plus mismanagement. We should never imagine this is just the blockade. It's also the epic mismanagement of these industrial assets. But is, it, is blockade helping create political dividends in the Minsk and Normandy negotiating processes faster than it's undoing the basic industrial economic potential of these territories, their basic potential to support their residents? Uh, also, an important debate that's happening on a certain level inside Ukraine uh, I would argue no. Um, it's not it's not having it we're not seeing the payoff for Ukraine fast enough to compensate for uh, the degradation of the economic potential of these territories that Ukraine every day states it wishes to reintegrate uh, and does sincerely um, uh, so I think what we're, I, I'm concluding, I have this and one more slide I'd like to, like to present. I think we're in a situation in which Ukraine is forced to operate in a scenario that the basic conditions of which are set by Russia. Uh, and especially of late, uh, Russia has just shown an intransigence and escalatory uh, character that forces Ukraine to just constantly react. Ukraine is just always reacting to Russia's latest move. And this really limits, I think, Ukraine's economic policymaking agency in the Donbass. And I, I really think Ukraine needs to do everything it can to reclaim it. And that's very difficult. I'm extremely sympathetic to the situation Ukrainian policymakers are put into because they are constantly having to react to the conditions set by Russia. But uh, if these territories are to be reintegrated, they need to have the potential to support their population. And in order to create conditions for that, Ukraine has to strive to make policy in the long term, even when sometimes I believe that will put them in situations where they have to not make what appears to be the correct move to react to Russia's latest move uh they there probably needs to be room again for some very ideologically ambiguous policy making, as was the case until March 2017. Nobody thinks that was a very clean policy to have Ukrainian factories operating in territories being controlled by uh, Russian armed forces and their separatist clients. Uh, but uh, it allow it it allowed people on that side to maintain, uh a basic level of livelihoods and a very important uh downside to the blockade is that anecdotally uh people in the non-government controlled areas really see it as a turning point in their impoverishment things were very bad until march 2017 and then they became unbearable uh and whereas people there certainly recognize this is visible in that monitoring of social media uh that um uh, their enterprises are being disastrously mismanaged. Uh, there's a very clear uh, resentment, heartbreak about why, 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 why were we cut out of the Ukrainian economy and, and the global economy? Uh, why was this decision made? Not at the hottest moment in the war, actually, but but at least a year after it had quieted, that, quieted down. So we need to consider these. Um, I'm not going to get into it here. I have a sort of for and against slide about the blockade. I think I, I, I touched on all of that. Um, what I'd like to close with is um, in this extremely difficult situation, what, what would it look like if Ukraine tried to explore contingencies for returning uh, uh, as much as possible uh, the industrial economy of the non-government-controlled Donbass to Ukrainian jurisdiction, to its legal sphere, and back to global markets, allowing uh, some basic livelihoods, again, to be earned in, in those territories. Um, I do not have a fully developed proposition for this at all. I would just like to float an idea, um, a, a concept, and, and as an example of the kind of contingencies that Ukraine could be, could be thinking about. As I said earlier, uh, this shadowy holding, Vneshtork Service, really set a precedent earlier of not paying local taxes, uh, and instead, actually, they m- make what's called socioeconomic contributions, where, which are pitifully small, like $2 million a year, for support of social infrastructure. Interestingly enough, they rather created a, a, a possibly good model for Ukraine. If management can be returned to the legitimate owners of these factories, they might continue this method of not paying taxes, which is a very difficult thing for Ukraine to swallow, to have these factories pay taxes to the separatist authorities, but make a much, much larger socioeconomic contribution to the local economy. Uh, Basically make just direct payments uh, to schools, hospitals, uh, maybe the pension fund, uh, maybe other ideologically not sensitive ways to pump some money into the social safety net on that side. Uh, Uh... continuing the way that Moscow has basically cut the republics out as much as it can from controlling that money, uh, in, uh, allowing Kyiv to use a similar model that puts money directly into the needs of the residents of the region. Uh, this is ab- There are so many questions that would have to be answered to even think about something like this, uh, beginning with whether uh, Russia would ever really accept uh, would throw Vneshtorg service and Korchenko under the bus and allow the Ukrainian oligarchs to re- regain control over their enterprises. Um, uh, further questions, you know, what kinds of contributions to what? As I mentioned, schools, what do you do when those schools are actually teaching separatist ideology? Uh, very difficult questions, but uh, not thinking about them and holding on to the status quo, will, I, I, I believe that trajectory is so obviously bleak uh, that we should be thinking about about these kinds of scenarios. So uh thank you very much and the last thing I'd like to say is um everything is not just industrial decline and and uh strife it's it's bluebell season in the Donbass.
0: Thank that was you. Very nice touch Brian. Um we're we're short on time so uh, we have microphones on both sides of the room. Uh we'll be happy to take questions. We might take a few at a time. Uh while you're thinking of your questions uh let me just Uh, ask one, very pointed one, and I I encourage you to answer quickly so that we can get through plenty of questions. Uh, And that would be, there is a, I think you noted it explicitly, but it certainly was implicit in much of what you said, uh, a presumption that the goal from Kiev is reintegration. Uh, In fact, there is a debate in Ukraine uh, where one very hardened position is, you know, let them rot. Yep. Is basically g- cut them loose, and if that if that was policy, or if that was the background assumption to a policymaker, and it certainly is for some in the Rada and, and some forces in public life, what let me put it this way, sort of social science term how how would the policy approach look different if that was the background assumption as opposed to the assumption you charitably?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, well. Uh, uh I don't think it would look different. I mean, un- unfortunately, right now the policy uh, facilitates the greater integration of this area into Russia's economic sphere. Of after separ- after so-called nationalization came rubleization. I think it was coming anyway, but uh, it I think accelerated the rubleization of the economy on that side. Um, uh, to a certain extent, logistic chains on that side were were re- reoriented on Russia. It's it's accelerating the economic integration of that territory into the Russian Federation's greater sphere. Uh, but as a, in a way, as I mentioned earlier, that's sort of semi-colonial from Russia's side, a very exploitative relationship. Uh, so unfortunately, I, I I don't think you'd have to do much to change policy if the goal was not to reintegrate these territories. Now, what Moldova has done is allow economic reintegration to go galloping ahead of political reintegration, which is a very interesting approach I talk about quite a bit more in the cannon in the Cable, um, which has its upsides and its downsides. Uh, some people there argue one of the downsides is you sort of gave away the economics early, and so it's less available as a bargaining chip. But it also clearly plays a role, without political reintegration, in making life livable in Transnistria, the uncontrolled territories of Moldova, and lowering tensions. Uh, I think that, that comes through very much when you talk to Moldovan actors, is uh, the extent to which things are... It's, it's the frozen conflict that's chill. It's... Uh, it's really a, a much, and, and there's not an active active fighting going on as as there is in the Dunbar. So there's many reasons that that comparison is hard to make. But political reintegration and economic reintegration are not always uh, tied together.
0: Great. So uh, as I said, we have mics on both sides of the room. If you just raise your hand, um, go right here, uh, and introduce yourself and your affiliation, and then question with a question mark, please.
2: Sure. Thanks. First of all, thanks a lot for um, for hosting this. This is a great, um, I thought it was a great presentation. Um, Lyndon Allen, I'm with the law firm Baker McKenzie. Um, my questions and opinions on this are personal, don't relate to my work. Um, so th- I want to thank you for giving me an, an insight, and I will get to a question mark, yeah. but this is just very quickly. The 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 Vniehstrog service structure seems like a way... Um, certainly probably for some people to enrich themselves, but also for Russia to defray some of the costs in a more direct fashion, which has always been an issue with some of the other um, uh, protracted conflicts. And I remember early on, there was some talk about, well, gee, it's going to be a money pit, and so maybe this was some lessons learned. Um, There's a long history in Transnistria of um, Russian assistance having to be audited and lots of um, mismanagement of those resources. So that's an interesting insight that this is not such a money loser and that Instead of having something like Sharif in Transnistria, which is independent and can be a political actor on its own, maybe they avoid that possibility a little bit. So um, one, one question is, um, is anybody talking – I mean, I have a lot of smaller questions, but I, I'll save that maybe for afterwards. Um, is anybody talking now about the possibility of putting together a pot of money that would be sort of a um, you know, post-conflict remediation fund? For not just to rebuild factories, to me that's uh, almost secondary, but to do environmental remediation. um, This is maybe kind of a pie in the sky idea, but it strikes me that there's a lot to be done there because I think probably Donbass was a super fun site before, even before the conflict. um, And I I just don't, I I don't know. I mean, I've I've been thinking that would be a good idea for a long time, but I never hear anything about it going forward. um, So, any thoughts
1: on that? Uh, Recently, President Zelensky announced the rejuvenation of the idea of a Donbass restoration fund under the leadership of the World Bank. Um, So it's beginning. Um, That idea came up in 2017 and didn't didn't fly. Uh, He'd like to restart the idea. I think the World Bank is open to it, which would, of course, be focused on Western donors. There's a big question. I think it came up at the, the Munich conference, you know, how do you call and what do you? How do you get Russia's money into a restoration fund? Would they demand that they be thought of as a donor? Uh, Ukrainians, I think, would say, "What? What do you mean, donor? You should be paying us compensation." Uh, but I think that's a big question is what Russian funds. But but at least from the Western end, there there appears to be a World Bank led effort. Uh, I'd like to quickly say, um, yes, I think I, I have a. I, I wonder if part of the reason that the Vneshtorg service structure was chosen was a way to pool all of these economic assets into one holding to make it easier to cut a deal mm-hmm. uh, so that they're not spread among a bunch of field commanders and local separatist businessmen and Russian businessmen. They're under one roof. So when I said, I wonder if Moscow will throw Korchenko under the bus at some point and sort of say, all right, fine, we're ready to deal. It all goes back all at once. You only have to do that negotiation with one Well, you do it just with the Kremlin, basically.
0: Can I just comment on that? You make that point in the article, and I think that this is one of the critical questions. If you flip the equation on its head and instead of looking at it from the conflict resolution or management of Ukraine's interests in territory, it doesn't control perspective, but look at it from the perspective of, well, these people who are playing the roles of, you know, currently performing the duties of governor of Donetsk, right, um, if they were behaving as if this was a long term thing for them if they were in fact building their little fiefdoms there how how different would their policies look right if Horchenko was actually becoming the real king of Kherchenko, Donbass, yeah. you know wouldn't he start to look more like ha- akhmetov who for all of his faults like ran a pretty going concern i mean
1: well sorry I yeah to well, be a question, but I'm well well to 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 briefly comment on that i mean I don't, I mean, th- this is really sort of getting into not so much conspiracy theorizing, but just sort of people's understanding of what's going on. Um, uh, former head of the Donetsk, so-called Donetsk People's Republic, Sakharchenko, was very upset about Vneshtorgservice service gaining control over all these assets and evidently was trying to claw some of them back or keep some of them from being integrated into it. And that's among the reasons Ukrainians think he might have been blown up. So I don't think Russia wants independent, economic players in those territories right okay
0: Um, no other questions yes right back there hi
1: my name is Ksenia
3: I work uh, at a policy research company uh, but my question is uh, about um, about decision-making Power in non-government-controlled territories and how it is distributed between, you know, local like separatist movements, uh, oligarchs, and Russian uh, actors.
1: Uh, I'd like to just preface this by saying, when it comes to the non-government-controlled areas, I'm mostly a consumer of, of a lot of Ukrainian experts' expertise. Uh, in the I work in the GCA. I only work on that side. Uh, but in my understanding, so I, I don't have my own sort of uh, for instance, visits to to Donetsk to be able to to draw on here. But um, w- in the form of economic decision making, um, as I mentioned, really, I think a concentration of decision making in this private body that I think is just a proxy for for the Russian government service that I think is really and truly deliberate. Uh, um, it's not to say there's no agency for the separatist leaders. Um, there's a lot of uh, jockeying for enterprises that are not worked into the, the vnesh service holding uh, as to who will control them, some uh, raiding pur- purportedly going on. Um, but I, I think it's r- we should not exaggerate uh, their potential for independent economic decision-making. Their tax authorities, which can't get money from big, the big enterprises, do still work. Uh, we've heard, in my work I've heard quite a bit, for, uh, that this is one of the reasons that small business in those territories is in such dire straits, is you still have a, a tax service looking for someone to tax.
0: I'm
4: uh, Gerard Toll. I'm a professor. This is a great presentation. Thank you very much for it. Um, I- in focusing on the economic, w- we sometimes perhaps lose um, a larger sense of the the capacities or the incapacities of the state. And we're in a moment right now where... State capacity, particularly healthcare capacity of states, is very much potentially going to be extremely stressed. Um, uh, so, could you talk a little bit about the scenarios where things get a lot uh, worse uh, in this area as a consequence of a major healthcare crisis or of a renewed fighting? I, b- I believe there's a water plant which is on the front lines, which is very much. Vital to everyday life uh, in uh, in these b- in both areas, and so um, just give us some sense of the you know the absolute degradation of the sort of uh, state capacity in terms of education, hospitals, healthcare, and the like. And there's, uh, as you probably know, there's some folks that are doing research on this uh, this issue, but it seems like it's a very important part of the mm-hmm. equation.
1: While the economic situation in the non-government controlled areas is extremely bleak, in certain ways, public services are well maintained, I think, quite deliberately uh, from Russia's end to uh, as a hearts and minds effort. So Donetsk is famously clean. The roses are watered. Uh, um, It's... uh, some public services are well-run, especially utilities, as far as just keeping them, keeping them going. Um, I mean, I think we need to recognize that those territories are facing a, a heightened version of Ukraine's overall ma- uh, massive labor migration. So, you know, Ukraine's undergoing uh, historic labor migration right now, primarily to Poland, uh, but not only, still very much to Russia as well. Uh, and, uh, of course, that brain drain is just um, uh, on steroids, in the non-government-controlled areas aimed into almost entirely towards Russia. Um, so that's both—for uh, a both Ukraine and the non-government-controlled areas in rather different ways, that's a safety valve that lets off social uh, tension. Um, uh, but it also is constantly bringing down, especially in non-government-controlled areas, you know, local governing and, and functioning capacity. What would happen if there was a major epidemic on that side, for instance— um, I, 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 I strain to, to, to not just be giving nightmare scenarios. Um, again, there's so much infrastructure on that side because the population was formerly so much larger in Soviet times that at least as far as like capacity in hospitals, I don't think you'd run into a, into a shortage. What you'd run into is how many doctors remain that haven't moved to Russia.
0: Yes, right here. Just wait for the microphone.
3: Thank you. I'm Oral Cotton with the Embassy of Switzerland. Uh, what I'm going to say, of course, does not reflect the position of my government on this issue. I had a very technical question about the proposition you floated at the end of your presentation, which was really good. Thank you very much. Uh, you said that if the management of the factories and of the mines that are in the non-controlled government areas were to be returned to the rightful owners that are Akhmetov and other Ukrainian oligarchs, well, with preserving the tax breaks, it would kind of free money for the Ukrainian government to then funnel it back into the regions with uh, direct payments for social services. But from what you say in your article, which I've read, um, you say that it's a scenario which was quite different from the one that happened in Moldova and in Transnistria because those assets, they were not privatized, right? Yeah. And uh, do you really think that is something which is, would be politically possible in this scenario, that those assets would be returned to the owners because this would... Uh, necessitate basically agreements with them, right? And it would be politically fraught to do it, especially for Donax, from the non-controlled uh, government no. areas and for Moscow. So w- do you really think this is something possible? Thank you.
1: I'm not sure. I really don't know if it's possible. I think it's worth talking about. I think it's a contingency worth exploring. And I think if it's possible, it will be at Ukraine's initiative. Uh, and I think Ukraine should strongly consider decisions like that and I think they're probably at least being thought about in the, in the Minsk sub, uh, economic subgroup led, led um, you know, fr- from Ukraine's side. Uh, Leonid Kuchma, who is Ukraine's chief negotiator, has been one of the most public figures talking about the necessity b- to return these enterprises to Ukraine's jurisdiction, but without technical details. It would be extremely ideologically fraught on that side to return them to their hated Ukrainian oligarch owners. Again, I suspect that the structure where they're all piled into one holding makes that potentially easier as part of one big deal. Um, It wouldn't be particularly popular in Ukraine either. Um, It's definitely not a moment to re-adjudicate the uh, privatizations of the 1990s. I mean, that's nice to think about, but I I really don't think that's politically uh, feasible. Um, uh, But this is extremely all contingent on Russia eventually agreeing that the scenari- current status quo is so dangerous uh, that they're willing to move towards Ukraine. Without that, none of this scenario is impossible.
0: Um, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll wrap on this question, but I want to take off on something that you just said, which is that um, you know, this isn't a moment to rethink privatization Uh, and you've talked a little bit about kind of the ideological component of the non-government controlled areas governance. Um, I'm just wondering why are we not seeing more explicit restructuring along the more or less neo- Soviet lines that the official ideology promulgated in every single other area whether its identity, history, governance in terms of Soviets, right? Like, Mm -hmm. why are we not seeing economic restructuring along those lines? Why is it just implicitly accepted that, you know, a sort of regular quasi-free trading capitalist, corporatist economy would be a normal thing when, in fact, some of the people living there are, well, most of the people living there are old enough to remember when it was not that way?
1: Uh, Well, their opinions matter very little. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. and I mean, I, I said that's one of the cruel realities of this situation. I mean, I don't have sympathy for people from the worldwide uh, radical proletariat who came to fight in. L- for especially the Luhansk People's Republic was particularly sort of left radical at one point. In the there were all of these Finnish socialists, uh, not socialists, excuse me, like like radical Marxists, uh, you know, national Bolsheviks from from Russia, you know, who are like the the Limonov crowd coming uh, and we're going to restore the Soviet Union. And a lot of them now just feel, I don't have any sympathy for them, but they feel just betrayed. What did we fight for? Mm. Uh, of course, you could have seen, I mean, r- Russia Russia is not a, a modern, you know, neo-Soviet right. right. uh, economy whatsoever. A lot of things that Russia did in the 2000s, like, like brutal optimization of their own coal sector, are beginning on to some extent, optimization means shutting down marginal coal mines are beginning in the non-government controlled areas, uh, which anybody who looks at the way Russia runs its own economy would have been able to predict, yes, these are not policies popular with the residents of the non-government controlled areas, and no one's asking for their opinion.
0: That's bleak. Um, So I'm glad you have the photo up of the the flowers. Um, (laughs) Would you all please join me in thanking Brian for this wonderful presentation?